Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Singer, the CEO of the Austin Technology Council. And no, you have not turned tuned in to the wrong podcast. You're in the right place. This is Austin Next. Michael, Jason, and I are working together on this episode of this podcast. So I'm kicking it off on the Austin Next podcast, and they're going to launch the version that will air on the ATC podcast, Austin Tech Connect. So we hope you enjoy this crossover collaboration. You know what? When I was a kid, I loved a good crossover. Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman. For those of you who are younger, Hannah Montana being on The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. That's what we're doing today. And today we are joined by Lou Senko, the Chief Availability Officer at Q2 Software. Lou brings more than 20 years of experience leading architectural design, development, implementation, and integration of enterprise-wide solutions to meet global business, financial, and market demands to Q2. His organization is responsible for the availability, performance, and quality of the solutions being delivered and the security and compliance of the environments that they are delivered from. This aligns hosting, support, with security and compliance under a single organization. With an advanced degree in electrical engineering from Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, Lou and his family landed in Austin in 1999. Now an active member of our Austin community, he serves as the president for Austin Society of Information Management and serves on several industry advisory boards. He is a sought-after resource for banking, credit union, and technology journalists. He is also known for his prowess for re-engineering organizations, and he offers unique expertise in corporate mergers, acquisitions, participating in more than 25 M&A deals throughout his whole career. So Lou, welcome to both Austin Next and Austin Tech Connect. How are you doing today? Good morning. Thank you. It, it, it's an honor to be with you folks, and, and especially on this first joint crossover. I appreciate it. So we're excited to be here. Hey, Michael and Jason, how are you guys doing today? Doing great, Tom. Thanks for being on our show. We look forward to being on yours. All at once. It's like this magic of technology. We're all together right here. So Lou, I want to jump right in. Tell us your backstory and what got you to Q2. Sure, sure. Well, that's a Neanderthal path. I know a lot of times you look at success and it seems like a straight line, but the reality is it's been a journey. I'm a, from a poor, poor farm up in northern Alberta. You know, 80% of Canada lives within one, one hour of the U.S. border. I grew up six hours north. So snow, cold, hockey's a religion. <laughs> um, and really uh, went through school. I got lucky and got some scholarships and, and grants. Uh, I was hired before I, I wrote, uh, wrote my final exam. So finished my exams on Friday, started working on Monday. And uh, it's just happened to hit a company that was uh, right in the in the boom of the 80s where they were growing and they just kept moving me to the next problem. And so I, I kind of built a, a reputation of drop me in. I'll kind of clean up the messy room. We work hard. We get to 35%. We work hard to get to 50, work hard to get to 80. And then finally, once I get to 95%, 
there's kind of a diminishing returns to get to 95.1 and 95.2. And you kind of move me to the next problem. And someone comes in after me that's better at optimizing. And off we go to the next problem. And so I moved uh, 14 times for that company. And then one of the last kind of moves was down here to Austin through, uh, again, one of many M&A deals. And then once landing here in Austin, uh, we did another 14 uh, M&A deals and kept growing to, uh, to finally two half billion dollar companies came together as a billion dollar company. And then uh, my boss, who was a great guy, I worked for uh, as we kind of worked through this growth and scale, moved over to Q2. And uh, I went to Michael Susan Dell Foundation for a year and, and talked about a great job and, and just a great mission of helping children improve their life trajectory through education. And, and it's just, it's such a, such a great cause. And so I was there for about a year until my boss who landed at, my former boss who landed at Q2 picked up the phone, called me and said, hey, I have an opportunity here to join me back at Q2. And knowing me so well, he could kind of understand if this was the right opportunity for me. So I jumped over to Q2 and I've been there. Uh, I joined them in late 2012. So I've been there for about 10 years now. I was employee 286 and now we're about 2,300 employees. Wow. So you've seen a lot of growth with Q2 over the years. Yeah. And that's, that's really, you know, if you think about, you know, you're not good at everything and, but you try to focus on a couple of things that, that maybe you can bring the value for. And, and really where I bring the value, I, I believe is around the uh, scaling and building phase of, of a company. Uh, you know, Q2 was a, a, a pre-IPO when I joined them. Uh, like I said, I was employee 286. We had about a million customers. We had about 240 servers. You know, today, 23 and a half million customers. You know, we have 12,000 servers in the data centers, 160,000 containers up in the clouds. And so it's it's been a, a huge build opportunity. Now, as you get bigger, you know, that, that growth curve starts to curve a little bit as you get bigger and, and, and more and more edges to the company. But, and again, being an engineer uh, by training, I, the building part kind of, kind of is my jam, but the reality is they don't let me touch anything anymore other than the organization. So working on the people and the roles and making sure I have management that people want to work for. And that's really where I've been focused for the last, you know, 10 years. So you're actually the first chief availability officer I've ever run across. So what exactly does that mean? And, and what is it that you do to be able to help drive the organization in this role? Yeah, yeah. It's the funniest title, but it's the coolest job, frankly. And really, when you think about our customers, who we, we provide their banking experience platform. And so as they lean into market, their end users, those end users got to be able to trust whatever device, whatever network, whatever time of day, they can get to their money and we're going to keep that money and their information safe. And so you know, that the actual delivery of those services from whatever, we have 14 different different hosting environments that are all kind of wrapped under one sort of distributed cloud. And so how we pull all the pieces together into a seamless end user experience that is not only kind of differentiating for that customer, but also secure and scalable and up and available. And so, so it's, it's kind of one throat to choke when it comes to deliver all that stuff, but it's really kind of... Uh, helping a group of very talented people kind of deliver on all the great software development that our company does to the end user. So really quick, and then I'm going to pass it over to, to Jason and Michael, give us a little bit of the backstory of Q2. How did it get started? You know, exactly who are the people that you serve and what has made it so successful? Well, you know, first of all, we're a mission-driven company. And if you've never worked for a mission-driven company, I tell you, what brings us to work every day is not to go buy the CEO a third boat. 
it's because it's making a difference. And Q2's mission is what we build strong and diverse communities by helping the financial institutions that's within those communities whose own missions to invest back into the community. So we don't want to see a day when there's just five big banks that get to decide who can buy a house, who can go back to school, who can start a business. And, and we really do believe that by helping these smaller local regional uh, banks and credit unions, help them in their mission, help them compete with the big boys is really what we're all about. You know, I live on a street, there's six homes, three of them bank with a customer that's, a, a, you know, we're hosting their digital branch at Q2. So, you know, we drink the water. When you think about how we bring uh, that digital, digital is the big leveling field, right? And and so when you think about some of the big, big banks, you know, three trillion of assets under management, I mean, they're a small country and their IT shops are bigger than all of Q2 is. How we can have the local little credit union that's just up the street be able to compete. That's what it's all about. So our founder was on a West Texas farm. Uh, they lost the farm in the 80s. So he had to go get a job as a teller at a local bank. And he spent all day answering the phone, reading people their balances. And he said, there's got to be a better way here. And so he had a friend that was a coder and said, look, we can make a program that people can call the phone and we'll read them their, their balances over the phone, right? Great little business plan. He went to Bank of America. They turned him down as he sat in the parking lot and tried to rethink his life because this was this was going to change his life trajectory from being a bank teller. He, on his way home, he drove by a credit union and said, what do I have to lose? And pulled into the parking lot and a couple hours later walked out with a loan that started the whole thing off. And so not only a great story that is mission aligned, right? The local groups are helping the local folks. I mean, perfect. And, and so that's how it all started. Now, Hank is just a great visionary around the culture of, of, of Q2 and what we what we need to become. His 20-year vision of, of how we look at customer experiences and always trying to improve the customer experience as, as kind of the North Star, the guiding star. So he's he's been he's been that that kind of thought has been woven through the fabric as we've continued to build. And thankfully it's still part of our DNA. Well, Lou, I'm a recovering banker. I used to be a commercial banker way back when. The main difference between Hank and I is he started on the teller side and I started on the consumer lending side. Oh, there you go. But, you know, I, I've seen a lot of the problems that local and regional and even large banks have. Tell me specifically some of the issues that Q2 covers for these banks. Yeah, sure. And when you, when you think about now how much of our end user experiences is just shaped by technology and and you know we all shop at amazon and it's always telling us what the next thing is that we likely would have because it knows so much about us you go to netflix and it's giving you the next movie to watch that is for the most part going to be something you're going to enjoy and just how these things are never down they're always up you can always get to them and they're suddenly behind the scenes shifting and focusing on us and making our experience unique and better and when you think about what a, a, a Chase or a Bank of America can bring to that digital experience, you know, 72% of all logins now are mobile, are from mobile devices. And so these are people on the go, they're on their phones, and that phone, as you know, does, you can order food, you can look at your email, you can do, so it's your life. And, and how you bring that engaging experience, it matters. And, and especially if you're going to have a customer come away from a Chase or a Bank of America and how you're going to kind of connect them to your brand. And so, so we really focus on kind of this 
end user experience. And you know, from a bank's point of view, they can't bring that kind of technology to their users themselves. You know, that they have to leverage something bigger. But even the solutions for inside the bank, for example, what is the risk in your current portfolio? And as you're going to price the next loan, knowing what you already have in your portfolio, how how you can put the best deal forward, that is the best deal, not only for that customer, but for your business as well. So it's using data and it's using kind of knowledge to be able to really position yourself to kind of win with the customer and not win instead of the customer, right? And win with the customer. And and again, it's winning that sophistication that the big guys have all the way across this this kind of network. It's great to talk about risk management because as we've seen over the last couple of months, mid-sized banks, the ones that aren't quite too big to fail, but still are very big. Um, we've seen some repeats, if you will, of you know what I saw in the, in the late 80s in terms of bank failures. And that knowledge of risk management and pricing is critical. So I want to just kind of drill down on that a little bit and, and talk about how you guys understand and help these bankers get into this risk management business. Sure, sure. And I'm certainly not the product expert, but I'll, I'll share with you as I as I understand it. And, and somewhere there's a product guy following out of his share as I talk through this. But, but the reality is um, we get to see uh, you know, trillions of dollars of loans. And so we see what's happening in the market. And so we can kind of use that market data as a, as a collaborative kind of uh, decision being tool behind the scenes. So, and then knowing that specific financial institution's portfolio and what the risk is in that portfolio, then as next acts, we can go through all the math and all the calculations and then use the market ebbs and flows to help kind of shape what this next deal should be. And whether how to price it so that it doesn't put more risk in your portfolio, but is it going to be as competitive as it can be in the market? And and so these are you know complex things that obviously not all of our not all of our customer base ranges from half a billion dollars under asset to all the way up to 200, 250. They don't all have that sophistication to be able to make those decisions themselves. And so bringing these tools to bear that the big guys are using uh, when they're pricing, it just helps level this playing field so that you're not at a disadvantage and you can appear very big online, right? I mean, that's the nice thing about being online. It, it, it's a level playing field right from go. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest issue because when I was you know, in corporate banking and we would price loans, I had to price certain types of loans for the system because we didn't have these tools at the individual level. So this is a, an order of magnitude or two advantage. We have a funny story just to build on that where one of our customers had this and his competitor did not have us. And he actually got together with that competitor and tried and convinced them to buy it because it made these loans smarter with the smarter data versus just a race to the bottom in price. And, and that didn't help either one of them out, right? Right. Oh, exactly. And with the regulators coming in and they bother your board, it's like, oh, my God, now i got to figure out something new. Right, right. Tom asked you about this this title that I had not heard at all before, before we talked about you, have, you coming on the chief availability officer. It sounds kind of like a lot of responsibility for innovations and moving things forward to get from that 95 to 96 percent kind of stuff. Tell me about the key innovations that Q2 has been working on lately. Yeah, you know, when you think about innovation, there's two parts. I mean, half this company is a developer creating product and creating innovative things for the markets that we serve. 
And then the delivery side, so my, my side of the team that gets, you know, takes that code and gets it down to the customer. So that code to customer train and then out, out to be used. There's a lot of innovation in, in our design. When you think about, and it's always, always focused on the customer. So, you know, the hosting team, for example, has built out um, active, active architectures. So, so when you think about uptime, you know, there's no matter how redundant you are in your technology stack, at the end of the day, if you're still in the same building, you've got a problem. And so how do you have continually delivering services from multiple environments? And so you can lose one and keep going and lose another and keep going. You know, as we think about a distributed cloud, that's, that's you know, we have an active, active data centers in our private cloud, but the public cloud has a big footprint in AWS, a big footprint in Azure, and we weave all these 14 environments together. So we have development teams creating things in parallel, and then we just seamlessly pull it together for, again, a seamless end user experience. We use the edges of the internet and to enhance that experience by moving some of the content, you know, the customers are creating these very engaging websites, but usually that means big graphics and little movie clips and stuff. And those are horrible things to deliver from a, a central spot on the internet to millions of cell phones across the US or across the world, frankly. And so we use the edges of the internet to help improve that experience. And so we move all that big bulky content out to servers closer to them on the edges than, than I am. And then we do it, but we, you know, we security is a differentiator for us. And so we really go into the market strong on a, a kind of thought leadership on the security side of the business. And so how we extend all the millions of dollars we spend on the hosting security to their place of business. So we actually include the connectivity between us in the security posture is another differentiating way. We've won several awards in the industry for, for innovation. And we're real proud of those. Those are not like financial services awards. They're like security industry awards. And so it just validates that we're spending the money in ways that, you know, help amplify kind of that innovation context that we, we try to bring to market. And that's a perfect segue because I want to talk about innovation in a large company and the culture. How does Q2 and how does your team build and promote that ability to be innovative and reward it and nurture it and, and make it happen so you guys can come up with the next idea and the next idea and the next idea? Yeah, yeah great, great question. Yeah. You know, we started as a startup, right? So that startup culture of uh, fail forward and, and always, you know, always be thinking about what's next. And it's the hard job of thinking about how do we get to where we want to go, but include it in what we're doing today. And so that we're always working on tomorrow. And, and that's, that's hard because as you get bigger then things like risk and things like compliance and things like security, you know, if you let it, will add friction to that journey. And we look at it very differently. For example, you know, we can be more innovative and we can we can try some things and we can be more experimental and we can move faster because we are so, so, so secure. So the security actually helps the innovation, not adds friction to it. Um, you know, most times DevOps or DevSecOps reports to the dev team and, and, and in our company it reports into the production teams. And so the developers write the code, it goes to QA, and then it drops into DevSecOps or application security, and it goes through that code to customer train of all the things you have to test, the non-functional requirements, security, cost analysis, all that stuff. And then out it goes to the customers. So we own that part of it. So again, we have the trust of the developers that we want features to go to customers. And 
developers have our trust that we know they want to write secure and scalable code. So we're we're not at odds with each other. We're we're together through this thing. And I think those relationships help us move faster through this kind of innovation cycle. So you know, and just to you know expand on that, you know, we have several startups that are local startups here in Austin that are part of our solution set. The things that we deliver to the customers include uh, proprietary stuff from these uh, startups here in Austin. We bring a marketplace, an innovation studio that helps create an ecosphere of new and different things that our customers, instead of waiting on us to develop, kind of get out of our own way and amplify the innovation by letting them, uh, almost like an app store, select innovation that's pre-wired and and go. We have a big uh, SDK API surface that allows developers, either third party to us that are certified or developers that sit in the customer site extend our product all over the place. And so we're, we're a true platform in that we design it, but you don't have to use it that way. You can you can change it and, and extend it the way you want. And and it doesn't have to wait for us to write the code to approve it, to, to do, do those things. Well, and I think that's a great segue to think about, I want to get outside of the halls of Q2 and outside of your direct work with the customers and thinking about how Q2 connects into Austin and the innovation ecosystem. And I think your mentioning of the innovation studio and this platform is a kind of a great place to start. So tell me a bit about what exactly is it and what's the structure of it? How does it interface? Um, and how does it work with uh, both Austin and I'm assuming it's more than just Austin? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're, you're right on. So innovation studio is more of a program, kind of an, uh, an umbrella that encompasses both our, our partner marketplace, so that that is pre-wired integration. So, for example, if you're a credit union and you, your customers are wanting to trade in crypto, we have four different partners as part of our marketplace that you can select. And they all have a little different spin, a little different style, a little different user experience. And so you can pick the ones that kind of fit your way of doing business. And you couple clicks of a button and boom, it's pre-wired into your, your new offerings. And so you as a smaller financial institution have access. I think we have something like 150 of these already in the marketplace. And there's a queue of like 300 waiting to get in, to get vetted, to get wired, to get going. We have a partner accelerator where certain customers, whether it's one of our customers asking for a feature from this vendor or we see a need, we can actually bring this in, in and incubate them faster to the marketplace. And so we have kind of this faster rails to get them in, get them get, add to value faster. Uh, and then we have that SDK API, it's called Caliper here. And that Caliper API, a very published API, it's how we extend our platform ourselves. So we use it ourselves. And then we've opened it up to the general market. So we have certified development partners that, uh, you know, you can come to Q2, you can have us quote on it. You can go to them, have them quote on it. Or we have training that we can train and certify your developers, and then you can go write your own. And so it's kind of the best of all worlds. You can have prepackaged, pre-wired stuff. You can bring someone to us and have them go through the process, or you can do it yourself and you know, eyes wide open. If there's something interesting that we think adds value for all of our customers, then we'll help jointly do that together with you and actually enhance the overall platform as well. And so how do you see that continual relationship going with like the startup and not, you know, not that Q2 is a giant company at this point, right? You still have a few thousand, but having something like the accelerator, having something like the marketplace where you have these different, you know, op it's more of an open innovation style versus a, 
buy build partnership style? How do you incorporate these different innovation methodologies within the, the company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's, it's a tricky dance, right? Because what you don't want to do then is come up with features that then replace your partners. You want to offer choices. And so I think that's the, the real key. If you think about the customer experience, I think, you know, we, we spend a lot of money understanding what good looks like there in that space. But that's our view of it. And it's not the only view of it. And so how we can offer choices for customers not only innovation, but innovation choices so that they can select the right partners that fit their style, their risk tolerance, what they want to present for their brand uh, and to give them choices. So I think for us, it's all about listening to the customer. We hold you know many meetings throughout the year of getting kind of advice from uh, the customers. Obviously, we're competing, so we know what the competition is bringing to the table. We have a great relationship with industry experts. And then, of course, we've hired many industry experts within Q2, so it, it's coming from a very knowledgeable group that's kind of shaping where we're going. So you have all this touch points of kind of thought leadership in this space, and then just to action it by things that we build and do, and then on these open rails to make sure that we're getting out of our way and let the ecosphere of innovation happen around us and support it. And so, for example, we, ha we have several startups that are actually part of our embedded within our product because it made sense that all customers want this feature. For example, we have composable dashboards and we have kind of this dynamic user experience. So it tracks everything that a user does on the platform with some machine learning. It knows kind of what normal is for them. And then because we have a spigot into all their spend, we know what they prefer. So we assign traits. You know, do you have, likely have kids in college? Do you like local restaurants? And so we come up with all these traits. And so with your behaviors and your traits, then when you log in, dynamically, the menus and what you see presented is different than when I log in because I'm different, right? And so that kind of deeper understanding of the user experience and really shaping it for them then you take that all the way to how the financial institution wants to advertise, you know. So based on your journey in, in life, whether you're a young kid starting a paper route or you're about to go to school or you got your first job and you need a car and apartment or now, now you're getting married and there's kids and all that happening to you or you're in retirement. The financial institution has a lot of tools that can help you along that journey. They just need to know where you are and who you are to be able to kind of marry that. And so with all this knowledge, the sacred ad space in our mobile apps and browser apps can be very, very specifically targeted to be useful in advertising of, of making that connection with the financial institution. Right. So you take now, if we think about the, the marketplace and the Avidia Studio, it's more about integration, scalability for these startups and early stage companies. I want to take the other end where now we think about like the dream starter competition, which is the very early stage and kind of that. So tell me about that uh, initiative. You know, our relationship with Austin FC has been super wonderful. And, you know, they, of course, as you've been to that stadium, you know, world-class stadium wins a bunch of awards. But all the things in that stadium are local to Austin. So all the food choices are local to Austin. All the So they very specifically looked at that. And so when you think about who's going to win naming rights, there's a lot of big tech companies that showed up in the last couple of years that could pay a lot more than little Q2 could. But again, our connection to the local roots are really what made us stood apart. We just didn't move here. You know, we've been here and we've invested in, in the local economies and local roots. So there's a couple of things we do with Austin FC. One is a charitable rounds. So we pick with their uh, Austin FC 
a foundation and Q2's foundation, we get together and we host a, a bunch of charity uh, conversations. There's applications. We go through rankings. We, we give about $150,000 a year to selected charities. And I think this year we announced we're doing it twice. But Dream Starter then is, is our way to kind of deal with helping the local innovation ecosystem here in Austin. And it's really for the underserved parts of that. So it's almost like a shark tank. You ask for applications, you whittle it down to five, you bring them in and they kind of do a pitch night for us. And we award the money. It's about $100,000 we award to. And, and so we def, we decide how we carve all that up in the moment, but uh, we awarded them to the best pitches. And it really has created this great opportunity for very early incubators to come and kind of come up and pitch. And usually it's the founder, it's the owner, it's the person with the big idea, just hoping to get an audience with somebody that's going to listen. And uh, it, and that's been just a tremendous, tremendous uh, positive energy that, that both Austin FC and Q2 have done together. The last thing I wanted to ask in this case was just the Austin FC question in that was why the stadium? Why go for it? Right. You see these kind of things. What, what, what was it about this that Q2 said, we got to have it? Well, I, I tell you, thankfully we did. No one came to me and asked me, should we do this or not? So this this happened at a pay grade above me or so. But um, when you think about talent is the differentiator here. Anybody can download the technology, buy the technology, build the technology. What makes Q2 special is the talent that we have that puts it all together. And so in the war for talent, and when you're the name under the brand, you know, people don't realize this, but, you know, one in 10 people that are doing online banking in North America are logging into a Q2 platform. And so, you know, the people that work for, for us go home and tell their families about Q2. No one's ever heard of us. And so trying to work through, you know, talk about a recruiting opportunity for me. It put Q2 on the stadium. Now everyone, you know, we do a lot of work with the schools. We do a lot of work with intern programs. We do a lot of work trying to make sure the Q2 brand is out there. But boy, that stadium certainly helped us, uh, helped us a lot. Well, Lou, I got to tell you, the Austin Technology Council appreciates Q2 because you guys have been a longtime supporter and a longtime member. And you do, even beyond everything you do with Austin FC, you do so much as a company to give back to Austin and really help promote the growth of, of, of Austin. And I think that's awesome. So on the Austin Tech Connect podcast, we always end with this question. And that is, I personally believe that community collaboration and conversations can solve all problems. And I think this episode is a perfect example of that, right? We're doing all three. We've got, we were talking about the community, we're collaborating between two podcasts and we're having a really important conversation with a leader here in Austin. When I say those words, community, collaboration, and conversation, which one resonates the most with you and why? Our mission is community aligned. So that's the communities we all live in. I think the collaboration, though, if I think about my day and how we come, how, how we work through where we want to go, where we want to be, what good looks like on our journey to get there, it's through collaboration. It's, you know, our staff can choose to work wherever they want to work. Um, they choose to work at Q2 because, you know, again, 11 years in a row, we've been a uh, best place to work in Austin American Statesman. We've won two years now the, uh, the new award for best place to work in the USA. You know, the employees donate 4,000 of their hours to the charities around Austin and uh, not and, and their personal money. So, you know, we've raised over $120,000 just to, from the employees to, to donate out. And so it really has become a, a place of, of like-minded people working together 
to make things better. And I don't know what the future will hold for us in two years, but I know if we keep ta- you know, working together on it and we're aligned on it, anything's possible. And, and we're not scared about that future. We'll shape it. And so, but I think it comes by working together and that collaboration is a key part of this. You know, back in the day, my team did a lot of infrastructure. We had servers, we had networks, we had buildings. And if you look at today, most of that has become software. And so our influence up the software stack has gotten more and more as, as more and more of the infrastructure becomes software. And so, again, that's working very closely with our development team. You know, we're doing a lot of things that are intertwined together and we cannot be successful. Neither group can be successful without the other. And that collaboration is a uh, great way to, to end with our signature question. I know you talked about just now how you might not know what's going to happen in a couple of years, but I'm going to ask anyway. Lou Senko, Chief Availability Officer for Q2. What's next, Austin, and what's next for Q2? I'm not sure I'm anointed with speaking for Q2, but I, I will tell you that it's all about the customer. So, you know, we've been on this journey you know, it was about seven years ago or so we launched commercial. We were into retail banking. We launched commercial banking. That's really opened up new markets of, as we continue to go up market into new realms. About 45% of the top 100 banks now are running a Q2 platform. About 40% of the top 50 credit units are running a Q2 platform. So you know, we're getting into bigger spaces. And what that means, though, is the demands and expectations on us keep going up. And so what was good enough? To, you know, yesterday is not good enough tomorrow. And, and so we've got to kind of continually, continually challenge ourselves with this kind of continuous learning loop of what's new, where do we need to be going, what do our customers need, what do they know they need, what will they need, and some of that's forecasting a little bit. I think we're going to go through a little bit of a... Um, a tight, you know, back half of 23 as that, you know, the banking center got a little rocky and, and but, you know, our pipelines and our sales motion has never been stronger. So, so we're seeing people see value in the digital platforms and, you know, doing this kind of change and getting on this stuff now, right? I think the ecospheres, the ecosystems will continue to grow. Um, so I think we got our toe in the water, but I think that will shape differently over time, not just to different technical features that you can plug into the platforms, but deals. For example, you know, is there a way we could sign a deal with that all of our customers would think about and we can sign on behalf of 23 million users and then do some sort of rev share where the smallest of our customers can get a great price priced on a big deal and they can get a small deal. And we can do some things where we bring a market to place uh, in this thing. You know, as the fintechs, connect more and more into our ecosystems. It was going to be a time where the fintechs were going to put the banks out of business. And it turned out that the fintechs are really good at getting money, but they need the banks to go make money with money. And so they're, now it's a marriage made in heaven. So I think you're going to see much, much tighter integration with the way banks and credit unions bring services to market, that there's going to be a bunch of fintech names attached to all this. As you log into your mobile platform, all the features and options are going to be the latest, coolest things that you've just heard about because those are the fintech ecosystem coming into this. So making that simpler and faster is is really a key driver for us. Great. Lou, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Tom, glad to do this together. It's been great. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. I hope this is the first of many crossover episodes. We'll work on it. Thanks so much for being on Austin Next. And on Austin Tech Connect. Great. Thank you all. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. 
please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.